We're diving into where we are in going through the Bible this year, and um, we're covering large chunks of scripture. Um, Last week, we did kind of a flyover over the book of Numbers, and kind of up at a 30,000-foot level. Uh, We might have flown over too high, because I intended to land the plane a couple times, and I didn't do too well at that, so um, we didn't touch down a whole lot. But we're going to be doing a lot of kind of looping back through in the, in the next weeks. Uh, if you guys have looked at the bulletin, you got me for a long time, so you're going to be really sick of me after, after probably this week um, and next. But we've got time to kind of circle back on some of those things, so hopefully we'll have um, the chance to do that. Um, it's good to see some faces I haven't seen. Michael, good to see you. Um, and uh, Slagles are here. Good to see them. Mrs. Slagle. She'll always be Mrs. Slagle for me. Uh, I can't say Lynn. It's just weird. Um, Is that a promo? Yeah. How you doing? Good to have you here. Um, Anyone else? Anyone else that hasn't visited before? Well, it's good to have you guys all here. Uh, I'm going to just open us in prayer, and then we'll kind of dive into where we're going today. Lord, I just, uh, oh, we just come before you, Lord, humbly. We're your children. We're your, your kids. Um, we do some dumb stuff sometimes. I know that. I know you know that. Um, but you're so faithful and patient with us, and I thank you for that. Lord, as we just look at Israel today and the story that you've been painting throughout Scripture uh, from day one, I just pray that you'd, you would let it resonate in our hearts. Convict us, as I know you've convicted me, and let your word just um, echo through our hearts this week and draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So some of the things that we pulled out of last week, which we'll kind of, like I said, we'll keep circling back to, but we looked at lessons from a stiff-necked people, and that word stiff-necked, I didn't coin, so don't think I'm um, leveling something out against the Israelites. That is something God coined. It's a Hebrew word uh, called kasha, which basically means, or kasha, I think is how you're supposed to pronounce it. It uh, just means stubborn, uh, heading in one direction, don't want to change, don't want to move, like a force of a driving wind. And that's kind of the idea throughout Scripture. And the people, quite often we see this, would be that way, either in the right direction or the wrong direction. And um, we've, we watch these people and what God is doing to this. We saw uh, the bronze serpent, which we'll probably cycle back to a little bit next week. And then we looked at Moses um, also, which we'll also cycle back to next week, how he was the first intercessor. And in our reading this week, we're starting uh, Deuteronomy, if you're kind of following along, and we're starting into that book. And at that point, um, Moses is giving the law uh, a second time. Um, we're actually now 40 years later, and he, the, the second generation is about to enter the promised land, so he's kind of looping back through, and he's doing a review of things. So I feel it's fitting for us to do that a little bit too, and just touch on some of the stuff that we went over um, in the past. But um, one, one of the things I want to aim for uh, in this and the rest of this series um, for the next few weeks uh, is, is the topic of being coming out of the shadows. Um, and, um, that, that idea is, um, throughout, um, scripture we see in Colossians 2, 17, uh, and Hebrews 10, 1, this thing that says all these things happen as shadows of things to come. And, um, I hadn't titled the series last week because I wasn't really sure what to call it, but I think that's kind of what we're going to be aiming at is shadows of things to come. Um, and what we want to kind of do is, 
this idea of um, when we look at our scripture and we look at the Bible and we open it up, um, a lot of times, I don't know if it's just Western or if it's modern, we get used to kind of zeroing in on one or two verses, a life verse, or sometimes even a couple words out of there. And there's, there's a good time for that. Sometimes we need to do that. But there's the way that the Old Testament is written uh, is very much um, big picture. And sometimes I mean, if you just zoom in at one passage, you get really confused. But when you kind of zoom back and you look at it from a bigger perspective and you see the grand narrative, it starts to come up uh, and become a little bit more clear. And that's what I really want to encourage you guys to be doing as you're reading through these books. When you see a confusing and difficult passage um, in Numbers or Leviticus or Deuteronomy, um, try to just put a, put a pin in it, come back to it, think, well, how does this fit into the whole picture? Because I really do believe as you pray and you seek the Lord, you start to see this. Um, I have seen that a lot more this year. I've now heard from two or three of you that have said the exact same thing. So it must be something that we're all kind of recognizing this time through. Just the grand narrative of what God is doing here and how awesome that is. So um, it's really exciting to me as we look at this. Um, Carolyn, I think that's actually my very last slide. So you might want to end the show and just start it all over because this could get really confusing if we go backwards. <laughs> um, we, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 14, as we read, uh, this is just a really good passage to come back to. Paul was warning the Corinthians, look back at the history of uh, Egypt and, and, and Israel and this whole story and look at it as an example. Um, when we look at the history of Israel, and how they're an example for us. One thing uh, I think we need to remember is that first off, Israel, when, we, when they come out of Egypt and they're going to the promised land, they aren't going to a new place. It's not a new destination. They're actually returning. In fact, they're actually coming back to the original charted course that God had set the people of Israel on. So they're returning to the promised land. If you remember the story, um, that's kind of how it went. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But we need to remember that, that this is more of Egypt was, was the side shoot. That was off track. And they're getting back on track when they're going back to the promised land. Um, and that's kind of critical for us. But some of these um, things that we're going to look at, I'm going to try to pull out three shadows, as it were, three pictures that um, we can draw conclusions out of this narrative of Israel today. The first one that we're going to look at um, has to do with Egypt. And uh, i got to turn it on. The land of Egypt um, and what it represents in this narrative. We'll, we'll try to come back to this map a little bit because I, I sometimes need to do this. You guys probably have something like this in the back of your Bible, but just kind of get some reference points uh, and where this is at because seeing the geography is good. Egypt is over here, uh, kind of at the bottom of the, of the Great Sea, uh, the Mediterranean. Over here is um, Israel, and this is where the promised land was supposed to be at. Um, for reference, um, I'm trying to remember a Abram came down actually from this way. He started kind of out over here, if I remember right. I might be wrong on that. But he came down into here. Uh, and then um, this is where kind of the whole story starts. But Egypt throughout scripture seems to be kind of pictorial of something. And it seems to illustrate, it's often referenced as um, a picture. Now, whenever I say this, I just want to say this now. I'll probably say it a few more times. When I talk about these aspects being pictures, I am not saying they're purely allegorical. 
This stuff is real history. It's literal. The, and I say that, I shouldn't have to say that, but I should, um, just because um, in our modern world, there's been a tendency for us to look at a lot of these stories and, and even a lot of Christians look at them as, well, they didn't really actually happen. They're just allegories. It's not true. This is history. And I love that because it means that we have a God that's bigger, that he can actually um, both oversee and paint his gospel message through the history of an actual people. So remember that as we go through. But they are pictures as well, and we can draw things out of there. Turn to Genesis 12. We're going to do kind of just some quick reference points as to what Egypt looks like throughout uh, the Old Testament. Genesis 12 is one of the first times we see this, and this is when Abram is first called, okay? So he's he's called. God says, I'm going to go make you a nation, and by the time you get to verse um, 6 and 7, uh, and five, six, seven of chapter 12, Abram is in the land of Canaan. So he's come down, um, down into about somewhere in here, and he's kind of sitting down, down in there. And it doesn't take very long at all for things to start going awry. A famine comes up in verse 10, and so Abram goes down to Egypt, and he ditches the promised land. Now, I don't think, honestly, um, he was permanently leaving. I think things just got uncomfortable as um, they often do. And he looked around, and I really do believe this was him stepping out into his flesh a little bit of, uh, this land looks great, but there's no food here. I got to get out of here. He could have trusted God to see how God would provide, but he didn't. He went down to Egypt, and as you guys probably remember or have read, uh, things got a little dicey down there. He relies on his own flesh, his own wisdom, and he lies to save his own skin. Uh, He tells all the Egyptians that his wife is not his wife, it's just his sister. And so the Pharaoh thinks it's okay um, to try to take her as his wife and it doesn't go well for the Pharaoh. God prevents that from happening. But there's something really critical that happens here. Um, God, God, so God is preserving the story. He has a, something he wants to do. So he, he steps in and preserves things from going any further. But there are some consequences. Verse 16, When Pharaoh takes Sarah into his house, he gives Abram a bunch of things, including female servants and male servants. Fast forward over to Genesis chapter 16, where once again they are sitting, waiting for God's promise, and things aren't happening. Sarah and Abram try to take it into their own hands, and who do they go to? The Egyptian slave. So this baggage that, um, that uh, sorry to call Hagar baggage in this, but again, think of it from a pictorial, it's not a demeaning statement. She was representative of Egypt. Abram had stepped out on his own. He picked up this, this female servant. He essentially really traded his wife of promise for this uh, Egyptian servant. And now it's Sarah's idea, honestly, to marry Hagar and try to have a child through her, but they do this to try to create an heir, and and God's not coming through on his promise, so we're going to do it. It's it's a picture, again, uh, of interacting, trying to take things into my own hands, trying to deal, and it's just interesting that it happens to be an Egyptian in this case. So Ishmael is born out of this. Ishmael is actually, then, we see half Egyptian. I had never noticed that until going through all this, Um, but it's very fascinating. He's half Egyptian, Out of Ishmael comes this line. Um, Later, if you were to fast forward up to chapter 16, well, actually chapter 21, uh, after Isaac's born, 
Sarah wants to kick Hagar out and Ishmael, and they do. God sees it. He interacts. Um, he says, it's okay. I'm going to take care of you. So they are not left desolate. But by the time we get to verse 21, we see that Hagar takes Ishmael down back to Egypt where she came from, and he has, uh, he, he's given a wife down there. So he carries on that. So we have this, because of some mistakes relying on the flesh, we get this kind of bridge between the promised land and Egypt. There's like a link here that's left over because of this relying on the flesh. Egypt is pictorial of our own flesh and relying on our own self-sustenance. If you were to go forward to Genesis 37, do you recall what the caravan was made of that took Joseph down to Egypt? Ishmaelites. They came from Ishmael. They were left over from this, this link, this bridge that was made. And um, as a result, Joseph goes down, once he's in charge, all of Israel actually follows down, and that's how they end up in the land of Egypt, okay? Now, um, there's a couple more references that we can see. If you looked at chapter 26 of of Genesis, Isaac, uh, at this point, uh, he wanted to go to Egypt. There's another famine in the land. This time, God just put his foot down and said in verse 2, do not go down to Egypt, um, and just put it down. Isaac actually tries to do the exact same thing his dad did, this time with the Philistines of um, lying about his wife and all that kind of thing. But the point I want you to see here is God made a very clear point. I do not want you to go to Egypt, and there's a reason for that. If you flip forward to Leviticus 18, this is just one law. There's a few more that talk about Egypt, but this one was very uh, interesting as well. Because right when God goes into this long list of all the um, unlawful sexual relations, all the people you're not supposed to have sex with that are outside of marriage, he starts it by saying this in verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan either. But Egypt there is linked with sexual immorality. And if you were to go, you don't have to turn there, but to Hebrews 11, when it talks about Moses It says that when he left Egypt, he was fleeing the pleasures of sin. So this is just to say, what is Egypt? What's the deal with it? What does it represent? What's it a shadow of throughout um, the Bible? Um, It it basically represents a lot of different things that have to do with our flesh. Um, The world, self-sustenance, pride, sensuality, um, ease, control, power. All these things are kind of linked together, and most of the times when Egypt is talked about throughout the scriptures, that's what it's picture, a picture of. Now, as Israel goes down and they live there, uh, as we know, they also become this harsh taskmaster. I mean, they put them in bondage. They become, they're enslaved, and they actually even, they're, they're killing them. Egypt is literally killing them, and yet it seems that as we read Uh, And Israel complains on their journey. They take off and they start going across and it's not but like one chapter past the Red Sea. They're complaining and saying, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back. And all they can seem to remember is all this stuff that they got out of it. And it's just, you don't, (laughs) I I have never noticed before, but um, in all this, you never see one Israelite stand up and say, yeah, but they murdered our babies. (laughs) I, it's, it blows my mind. They literally, I mean, if, if a tragic, something like that happened today where a people group took all the babies and threw them in the river, they're literally floating babies down the river, murdering them. How could you forget that? 
and yet they do. All they seem to care about is what they got out of Egypt and what they, um, all the sustenance. It's very fascinating to me that as you look at even the picture of children in the Bible, children are an inheritance. They are the future. They're the generation you're pouring into. And so when, when Israel says, I would rather have these things and just, you know, yeah, they did it to the kids, but look at what we get out of this. I mean, we get this thing out of the deal. It's almost as if they put themselves before the future generation. And I think it's very fitting that by the time they finally come to a tipping point in Numbers 14, they tell Moses when they have the opportunity to go into the land, they say, we wish we would have died in the land of Egypt. And at that point, God says, you know what, I've had it. So you're dead. (laughs) You're gonna die out here in the wilderness. But isn't it fitting that that generation that cared more about themselves than their children It ended up being their children that went into the promised land. So there's something very fascinating we see about this picture. You don't need a Bible, a college degree to connect these dots. Uh, Felipe has the bulletins, so um, he's going to be coming down here, and then you can catch up on what Dave said. Um, But also, as I'm going to put out as an advertisement every week, the Bible reading's in there. So if you want to follow along with where we're going to be at, um, you can find that in there. Um. You connect the dots. You can probably, guys are probably already ahead of me on that. But make some application points. What, what is your Egypt? What do you return to? What do you willingly subject yourself to slavery to? What do you even endure severe loss to hold on to? What is the sin that's in your heart that you're holding on to? And you would, even though you look at it, you know the data, you know this thing is costing me a whole lot, but... Ah, look what I get out of it. What are you holding on to? What is your Egypt? How often does sin promise and even partially deliver this stuff? Comfort, ease, warm meals, and a nice view of the Nile while robbing us of God's true promises. They completely forgot about what God's plan was, this promised land, everything. They completely just ignored it. They were just happy to be there, even if it meant being in slavery, even if it meant their children were killed. How similar are we, though, to Israel? I read this uh, interesting article this last week, uh, which had a really great clickbait title. Um, It's from Desiring God. Uh, The title was, No God But One, Baal, Yahweh, Amazon, and Me. So I had to click it and read it. Um, I'll kind of summarize some of the main points, but basically it was talking about polytheism and how um, it was such a draw for cultures like like the Israelites and and ancient cultures and most of the time today we look at that and even though we're not probably by and large evolutionists in here most of us kind of assume we've evolved past that kind of thinking like I don't know what the whole deal was with many gods but I would never fall for that we're not that far from it and that's the point of the article Um, he talked about what the draw of having multiple gods was and most of it had to do with the fact that Um, there's two things. If there is many gods, then there isn't one God responsible or powerful enough to control everything. So that's easier to process. You don't have, when things go wrong in the world, you don't have to deal with the fact that there's one God in control. Well, it could have been that God's fault, could have been that God's fault. So whatever, we're good. Second, and this is much deeper, if there isn't any one God who can control everything, then there's no one God that controls me. 
And it really, in the end, comes back to that Genesis first lie. I'm actually God. Because when I decide which gods are in control of what and what ones I want to give credence to and when, where those lines are drawn, well, ultimately, you are God. You're making that call. And that's the draw of polytheism. And we really aren't that different today. We say we're monotheists many times, especially in the church, or we say if we're outside the church a lot of times that we're atheists, but we relegate God into the sidelines so often, even as Christians. I mean, how many times do we take, um, and we say religion should stay out of this sphere, whether it's politics or science or education or finance or parenting or marriage or sex. It's easier to trust the gods of Wall Street and physics and Google and Amazon and Apple Hollywood, the tabloid, social media, or your favorite news source. And yes, I mean all the news sources. It's easier to trust those. When we look at it and we say, well, God seems silent, so I'm going to that. You're going to another God. And it's easier. There is much more of a draw to that than we really want to admit. So when we look at Egypt and everything it contained, it had all these draws. It had the draw of there's multiple gods. There's, I mean, it really was a cush life except for the murder and the slavery. But beyond that, it's pretty, it was worth the trade-off apparently. They seemed to enjoy it enough. Um, and they seemed to just miss out on what was really going on. They needed deliverance. And eventually, they did come to a point where they cried out. It took 80 years after their children were murdered, 80 years of bondage before they finally cried out. But they finally did. Remember, this people is a kashe people. <laughs> They're very stubborn. It takes them a long time to shift that path. But when they finally did, they finally said, okay, God, please deliver us. And God stepped in. Now, this was God's um, design as well as theirs. Um, we see in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, that God desired to set them free. And he said, I've heard their cry and I want to set them free. So he does. And he steps in with the Passover lamb. Um, you guys know the plagues. Um, you can read about them. I mean, if you guys want to kind of peruse as we look, I'm not going to go through every plague. Don't worry. But it's in the first part of Exodus up through chapter 12. And we go through all these plagues. But finally, God says, by heavy hand, I will lead Israel out. And he does. And by the 10th plague, he says, I am coming against the firstborn, and you must have the blood of a Passover lamb across your doorway if you are going to be delivered. Um, God's wrath is coming against Egypt, and it has finally reached a climax there. Uh, even his justice is finally coming. God was not ignorant to what they did to the babies. He was not ignorant to the vast murder and the oppression and the horrible sexual immorality and everything going on. He has had enough, and so he is putting an end to it. But he says, as I come, you must follow these instructions, Israel, or else you will be swept away with the judgment I have. And this is where the Passover lamb comes. Now, what's interesting is he tells them to kill this perfect Passover lamb, which we're going to talk about this more in the next couple weeks. This is Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus, as we know. We just sang, the perfect lamb was slayed, uh, slain. Hmm. Um, Jesus is the picture. This was painting the fact that we need to have a perfect lamb killed in place so that we do not lose our firstborn, our inheritance, our future. Um, it is about that. So the perfect lamb represents that. But then he tells them, put the blood on the doorposts. Now, this was the best... Egypt was a long time ago, so 
Give it a little bit of break. It's hard to find a doorway that's still existing from Egypt. This was actually probably out of a tomb. It's been preserved in a, a museum. But um, most scholars believe as the tombs were, so were probably most um, Egyptian houses. And what they had, you guys, it's probably hard for you to see, but can any of you tell what's around the doorway? What looks like it's carved up there? It's a lot of writing. They're, they're their gods. And this was, this was a form of idol worship that they, they all adhered to. They would carve the gods around the doorway. And it was a, a ritual that you believed as you walked through that doorway, you were under the protection of those gods. So when God says, paint the blood around the doorway, cover it all up. Everything else you were trusting in, cover it by the blood of the lamb. Gives me chills just to think about. But God is painting this picture. You can trust in nothing else. The same same picture applies. You must pass through the blood to be within the protection in that home. And God is overriding their polytheism. The Israelites, Jerry said this, and he's right. The Israelites were not monotheistic. They wanted all these gods. That's what the draw of Egypt was. And so they probably had these same gods over their doorways. And so God is saying, you must trust in my way of salvation only. And this, of course, as you guys can see, is a very clear picture. So we see um, four things that kind of Look forward, we see Christ in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In John 10, he says that I am the doorway. You must enter um, through me um, to be at rest in my sheepfold. In that, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says. Um, We also see another picture here that, um, remember the idea of children and saving children. Children were a, a representative of the future, of ongoing and your inheritance going forward so when god is saying i am preserving your firstborn i am rescuing them it's that god is saving more than just you i am saving the future i am saving you for a purpose i have something i am calling you to last year we went through ephesians and we read this first um, that we were saved for good works which god has prepared for us beforehand ephesians 2 10 so we are saved chosen for a purpose i think is even there And we also see in God's judgment on Israel, or sorry, on Egypt, that delayed justice does not equal injustice. God eventually does write the record, sometimes in this life, as what happened there, sometimes in the life to come. Yet God did um, rain down justice on Egypt for what they had done to his children uh, in killing all those, I really believe. So um, these are pictures that we see throughout this. Um, and it's very, very powerful, I think, and we, we look at this. These are shadows of things to come. So there's one more um, that we want to look at today as we look at kind of where we're at in this and the next step. So just kind of look at where we go next in the story. Um, Israel, they're in Egypt, so they leave Egypt. They are baptized into the Red Sea. That's what we just read in 1 Corinthians 10. It's a picture of being baptized into Moses, into the law as they go through there. So they actually journeyed down here, kind of down, and they crossed right here. Uh, The next part, they're given bread and water up here, which we're told is representative of Christ. Uh, And there's a picture of that. And then they go back down to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. That's where Moses had first brought God. So he thought, well, what better place to bring these children to? Let's go back to where I got those or where I first met God on the burning bush. And there God gives 
the law. So in theory, from here on out, it should be smooth sailing. People obey the law. They've now forsaken their gods. They are now his children. They're back on path, and they should be going to the promised land, correct? Well, you guys know what happens. It doesn't go quite that well. We need to look at what this last picture is, the promised land, and what this is a shadow of. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll be in here for probably the remainder of today. We'll be bouncing in and out of, as I told you last week, we'll be in and out of Hebrews throughout this whole um, series probably. What is the promised land in this narrative? Um, Literally, of course, again, it was the land of Canaan. It literally was. It's not just a picture. This was really a place where God had a plan for Israel, and I will say God even still has a plan. Israel to this day has not fully possessed the land, and it is yet to happen. That's exciting. God still has promises that have not been fulfilled and are not going to be fulfilled until he finally brings Christ back to earth to do it, to be the full culmination of all this stuff, to set up, he'll, he'll be the right David kind of king, he'll be the right kind of Moses, and that's what we're going to be talking about, I'm getting ahead of myself for the coming weeks, but it is still to come. This land is a literal place where Israel is going to be, but in the picture, what does it represent for us? Um, I should say, because I think it's, it bears, I, I hate just jumping into a book without any context, so just three quick points about the book of Hebrews. The author is unknown, and I'm not going to go into that. I have theories of who I think it is, but then I'd have to qualify them. So um, we'll, we're going to leave it unknown for now. Um, it's not that important. Audience was Jewish Christians. This is the most important thing we need to know. They were Jewish Christians that lived shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 that they were being, they had, they had left um, Judaism, they had left keeping the law and everything, all that to follow Christ, but now things were getting rough and they were being tempted to see if there could be some way we could blend the two. Can we like, maybe we can be, like be a hybrid of, of keeping the law and being Christians. You know, why can't it be all the above? And the writer of Hebrews is adamant about the fact that you cannot do that. Those things were shadows of things to come and they have now been fulfilled. And right now, the warnings that we see in Hebrews to these Christians are the writer knew that judgment had been pronounced against the generation that had rejected Jesus. Jesus had said this place is gonna be overturned, the temple's gonna be torn down, the writer knows this is coming and as we know historically, it happened very shortly after this. The writer is saying, don't go back. If so, you're gonna be destroyed with everything that's coming. Judgment is pronounced against that generation. Don't, go, don't try to go link yourself back with them. So this is what's going on to these people. And there's five warning passages throughout Hebrews. This is the second one. And so that's about as much context as I can give you on Hebrews. We'll probably touch on each of these warnings if we get time throughout the series. But that's kind of where we're at. This one in chapter 3, verses 7 through four thirteen, is the second warning passage. If you look at chapter four, verse one, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us, any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The rest is what he's talking about as being the promised land. And he's saying the promise still stands. So what is he talking about? I will tell you first what I don't believe it is. Um, Quite often, I think when we look at the promised land and imagery of it, um, we, we think it talks about heaven. 
It's easy to get there. I mean, it's easy to think of that as being heaven. Um, that's where we get phrases in a lot of, especially kind of hymns. I haven't really done a, a study as to when they were written, but um, I would bet they're around a certain time due to theological kind of fads that happen. But um, a lot of older hymns kind of have imagery of you crossing the Jordan when you're going into heaven, or Beulah land, you know, like kind of thing. The, these that picture is um, often misunderstood as being heaven. If you take it to be heaven, you have some problems. Uh, first off, in this picture, Israel was already saved. Passover lamb, they left Egypt, they left sin, they left their life before, and they're going to the land. And uh, so when they fail out there, um, you kind of almost have to take it as they lost their salvation. And that gets a little bit dicey as far as that goes. Um, you also have to then reconcile with the fact that Moses and Aaron didn't enter because of their failure. And then you have to kind of put them in there. Well, then it's a picture that they lost their salvation as well. Um, this is, I think, very critical. I hadn't noticed before until studying this week. But God didn't allow them to go back to Egypt. It was not an option. It was promised land or death. <laughs> but but in, in a sense, that was actually his mercy. He was not letting them go back to there. There was the enter the promised land or die in the wilderness, those two choices. Um, he didn't let them go back into that bondage. Um, in the wilderness of punishment for those people that rebelled those 40 years, uh, it's interesting to note, God still provided for them. They still had manna, quail. It says their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. He even gave them victory in battles. Really doesn't look like a picture of final judgment to me. And furthermore, the land had giants in it. Promised land had giants. They had battles. That, that doesn't look like a picture of heaven. They had some work to do. Um, so I, I, really, I really personally believe that the promised land um, stands for something else. And it is a picture of something that actually, as the writer here in Hebrew says, the promise of entering the rest still stands for us. And there's a very strong warning about the fact that we can fail to enter that rest as believers. The, God promised the Israelites in this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he promised them that it would be a place of rest, Sabbath rest. As you look through the rest of chapter four, he talks about this Sabbath rest that was promised and that was supposed to come. And it was supposed to be, if you even think about the original intent of the Sabbath, and you look at what it was, it was almost like a date night with God in each week. In that, in that time when the law was given, taking one day off a week was unheard of. So for God to say, Take one day off and spend it with me. It wasn't just a command, I want to see if you'll do this and then I'm going to judge you because you're disobeying. It was, I want to spend time with you. And taking one day off of your work is a, is a, it's a statement that I trust God for my provision. And so this rest was supposed to be that. It was supposed to be a rest that they could enter in where God is providing for them and taking care of them. Um. What I think um, becomes a problem here is these giants that dwell in the land. Um, quite often, I think, when we think of the promised land, we think of it as a picture of absence of conflict. Um, and yet, that would be what heaven would look like. I'm trying to remember where I'm at in here. Yeah, so rest, sorry. Rest does not mean the absence 
of conflict. When you enter into this promised land, that would be, if we were thinking of it as pictured, that would be more accurate. Yet God had a plan for them to go in. So instead, I think rest is this picture where you are in the middle of conflict and yet you have peace. And the reason of, that we can have that is because Yahweh is fighting the battles. So his expectation of the Israelites was for them to go in, to engage the enemies, and then he would give the victory. He didn't want them just to sit back and just let him go do all the work. <clears throat> he wanted this to be a two-way street. And there's a reason for that. We see this all throughout scripture. It's another shadow, really. Faith is accompanied with action. You're supposed to act out on the faith. You don't just say, I believe, God, you're gonna win these battles, so do them. No, he wants us to engage. He wanted the priest to step into the Jordan before he parted it. He wants a little bit of action on our part, and then he wants to show his great power. And that's how he does this throughout this. So he expected Israel to go in to engage them and to dwell in the land. Um, we don't have time to go through it, but Psalm 37 Many of you guys are familiar with that. It's a favorite passage, I know, for many of you, maybe even a life passage. Psalm 37, 4 is, is a famous verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Little kind of side project for you. If you guys want to take a little devotional day, meditate on Psalm 37 this week. You'll see throughout there five or six times this reference, you will inherit the land, or you will dwell in the land. He keeps talking about the land, the land, the land. What's David talking about? He's talking about this. The fact that God has promises, and they start with this, delighting yourself in the Lord. This doesn't mean whenever you figure out how to delight yourself in the Lord, he's going to give you whatever you want. It means that when you find your joy in him, you're going to want what he wants. And dwelling in the land in this case looked like that. It meant wanting what he wants. It also meant hating what he hates and opposing the things that he opposes. That is what this rest really looks like. Study Psalm 37. It's a sermon in itself, but you would probably find more on it uh, on your own as you just uh, ask the Spirit to reveal it to you. So this rest stands before them. They can enter if they want, and yet we know the story. They fail to enter. They come to Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 13. Things fall apart. We learned this last week. We looked at the two they send in spies. Some came back with a positive. Most came back with a negative. About 80% had a negative report. 80-20 rule didn't work out here. You don't follow the majority always. In fact, the majority is rarely right, it seems, in these kinds of situations. And so the people side with the bad report. Fascinating thing I noticed. Um, when we read this story in Numbers 13, it says that uh, God told them to send spies into the land. But I don't know if you guys noticed this. Uh, Deuteronomy 1, when Moses is recounting the story, he says this, that the people cried out and wanted to send spies, so God allowed it. Paraphrasing again. But basically what it means is, God said, I'm gonna give you this land. They came right up to the edge of it, and they could have gone in. They didn't need to send spies at all. It was a lack of faith right there that got them in the trouble that they ended up in. I mean, think about how differently the story would have gone if they just marched right in, said, okay, get your swords, we're going in, we'll be back at evening. And they just went in, believed the promises, took the land. But they, they were still holding on to something in their past. And that was, I think, this link to Egypt that we've seen all along. 
Hebrews chapter 3 tells us in verse 12 that the reason they failed to enter was this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It was unbelief. Verse 19, we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They did not believe that God was able to do this. Chapter uh, 3, verse um, Verse 13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is the thing that deceives, deceives you, makes you think of Egypt. It makes you think, look how good we had it compared to this. There's giants that I have no idea if we can beat that giant. I've never even swung a sword. I, I, can't, I can't fight that battle. I, I may have been in chains in Egypt, but at least I had leeks and onions and cucumbers and melons, it says. That's what they were calling out for. At least we had, we knew what was coming. We had security. It's easy for us to look back at sin and the deceitfulness of it. And it calls us back to that. Luxurious Egypt can often even help us, will justify whatever it is, the trade-off, if it looks like this absolute faith in God where I don't know what's coming and I have to trust him. I'll take the security of Egypt. And I think we often do. So this is where we come to um, just the end here. A few application points. Uh, as we looked at, Israel waited 80 years in bondage before they cried out to the Lord. If you are still in sin, if you are still in Egypt, and you are in bondage, and you've never cried out, and you're losing your future, your children, so it were, maybe even literally your children, don't keep waiting. Don't wait 80, 80 years. Cry out. It's time. God wants to deliver you like he wanted to deliver Israel. He wants to return you to the original path that he had created for you. So cry out to him. Trust in the blood of the Passover lamb, which is Christ. Enter through that doorway and be delivered. Second thing, maybe you have left. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're still coveting the pleasures of Egypt. This Christian life is a lot harder than you thought. If you're not a Christian, you should be warned. The Christian life is much harder. We need to be saying that in our gospel presentation, by the way. It is a lot harder. It is way harder. It's much easier to be in Egypt, even with the slavery. It's much easier to be in that. To be a Christian is very hard. So maybe as a Christian, you're weary and you want to look back at that and that comfort. It can look very good. Or maybe the idea of there being one God terrifies you. And you, you wouldn't outwardly say that, but when, when you're at a difficult part in your life and you don't know if you can trust the word of God or science, you default to science. Or you're not sure about that passage of scripture versus this ethical thing in the world, you trust the psychologist. Those are other gods. We need to get back to worshiping one true God, putting him, trusting him that he has what's best. Are we failing to enter the rest? This is the last thing from Hebrews. Are we, God wants to give us rest from not just our enemies, but his enemies, the things that war against us. His enemies are the things that want to destroy us. His enemies are the things that are in that space that he wants to dwell in. He wants to be in this, in this relationship with you that you don't even have an idea of how great it is. He wants to be in that space and the enemies are occupying it. So, hate the things he hates. Hate those sins 
that are fighting against you hate those giants? Is it any wonder why David stood out as someone in the Bible, as a man after God's own heart? When he saw that literal giant, he saw him as an enemy of God, and so he said, he's my enemy then. Psalm 101, 3, I hate the works of faithless men. They shall not cling to me, David wrote. He hated what God hated. That's why God said he's a man after my own heart. This is where the rest is at, is in that place. If you took any sin that you're dealing with in your heart and you looked at it and you said, do I hate this like God hates it? Think about the answer to that. Wrestle with that. The second thing you should wrestle with it is, do I believe if I engage that sin, God will give me victory? Because those are the two warnings that we have here. We must believe God can give the victory. Don't fall into unbelief. Don't, believe, don't fall into phrases that say, well, no one's perfect, we're all humans. We just all fail. Don't do that. When you do that, you're saying, I'm okay with that giant. He just lives here. No, hate the enemies. Hate the things that God hates. Stand up and fight with valor. Victory is promised and rest. This rest in Hebrews 4 is what is at stake. There's one people group here too. Reuben and Gad, who decide to settle outside the land. They looked at the land and said, you know what? Can we just like make a deal? And they, left, they decided not to enter the land. And if you follow their history, you'll see that they were raided, they were pillaged, it didn't go so good for them. But God allowed it. God sometimes will allow that as well. But the scariest thing, and really gives me chills to think about for my own self, about this idea of the Israelites who wasted away in the wilderness is that warning is for all of us. There is a rest that you can enter in this life, in a relationship with God, in in a security, in a peace, in in a power where God is, you are engaging the enemies and God is fighting your battles and he is with you and your heart is with him and you are united and you are linked together and you are dwelling in the land. That is a promise for your life now. It's not for the next life only. But the alternative is, if you don't believe God can do it, you'll waste away in the desert. Yeah, he'll still provide for you. Yeah, he'll take care of you. You'll have food, you'll have clothing, but you're not gonna have that peace. You're gonna be in the desert. Living water flowing. You're gonna be in the desert. (laughs) That's almost pictorial. Uh, I don't know. I'm not gonna go with that. We aren't that far from Israel. We aren't that far from Egypt. But God's um, redemptive plan is still at work. Next week, little teaser. We're going to look at this aspect that Moses, who represents the law, was not able to take them into the land. What does that mean? What is the role of law? What is the role in our life? Moses couldn't bring them into that rest, but only a Joshua, or in the New Testament, Yeshua. Only he can. So let's pray. God, how many times do we covet this world and its offerings. I know just so much, even this week, you know how uh, Egypt looks so enticing. Everything there seems so much easier sometimes and I forget the bondage and the slavery that comes with that. Lord, we, we all do so quickly. But together, God, as a group, I know you, you strengthen us as we come together. You strengthen us by your spirit 
Together as a group, we commit, Lord. We look to you as the one that can bring us in. We look and we ask and we plead that you would give us your heart to see sin as you see it, to see Egypt as you see it, and to truly believe that what you have is better. And we declare that today, God. And by doing so, we lift up your name. And this we pray. Amen.